Good evening. Today is another opportunity for us to open the Word of God. We have been starting our study in the Gospel of Luke, but as we begin tonight, I would like to have us go back to the Old Testament to carry a couple of thoughts over from the Old Testament into the context of the Gospel of Luke. And so if you would, turn in your Bible tonight to the book of Exodus. We're just going to take a couple minutes for this, Lord willing. Exodus 15. Exodus 15 is, uh, the context is right after Israel has crossed the Red Sea. They have just been delivered from the uh, greatest army uh, in the world, probably at that time, the army of Pharaoh. And they have just sung this great hymn that we find in chapter 15. And then the Lord makes a statement in verse 25, partway through the verse, uh, after the sweetening of the water at Marah. There he made for them a statute and regulation, and there he tested them. And he said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you, which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. God made a promise to Israel that if they would walk in obedience, he would give them a vast dose of preventive medicine. They would not have the diseases that, uh, with which God had afflicted the Egyptians. If you go over to Deuteronomy chapter 28, God, uh, in a sense, repeats this, uh, not with the same words, but the idea certainly uh, is included in Deuteronomy 28, in verse 1. Now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all of his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All of these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. And he then begins from there through verse 15 to describe the prosperity and the wealth and the health that they would enjoy. Truly a prosperity gospel for a limited time for a specific people, Israel in the Old Testament. But in verse 15, he warned them, it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And as you read through the rest of the Old Testament and come to the end of the Old Testament, we find at the closing pages of the Old Testament that most of the Jews of the land of Israel have been scattered to the far corners of the world. They have been conquered by other kings and peoples. Most of them have learned to speak other languages because they have been subservient to other kings. They have uh, been defeated They've been diseased. They've been in uh, starvation and famine. They have been plundered and carried away. And then between the Old Testament and the New Testament, they, having been under the power of the Babylonians and the Persians, then the Greeks, and then the Romans in those 400 years between the Testaments, 
And when the pages of the New Testament open and we begin to read the Gospels, we find that Israel is in a place and a time of great darkness. There is disease. There is oppression from a foreign power. There is uh, all kinds of sicknesses and paralysis and leprosy. Uh, that we're going to talk about here as we go into our passages tonight. A great darkness had descended upon the land. Turn, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 9, a chapter that we're probably familiar with, but probably not uh, for the reason I want to point out tonight. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish, in earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. If you look down at verse 6, you'll recognize verses that you're more, probably more familiar with. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. And if you'll notice the third phrase, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God, this is a child who is born. A human child will be called mighty God. This is a prophecy of the incarnation and a promise that light is going to come in a time of great darkness. Well, as we turn into the pages of Luke and come to chapter 5, we see that light coming in the darkness. So if you will turn there with me to Luke chapter 5. We're in chapters 5 and 6 tonight. We were there last week looking at Christ's initial call of the disciples and the miracles uh, that were associated with that. Tonight, we're going to take a look here at some of the early miracles of Christ, the demonstration of his power and glory of his Godhead. Uh, Lord willing, uh, the next time we're together, we will be looking at the beginning of chapter 6 and the Lord of the Sabbath. We will be dipping into part of chapter 6 tonight. We have mentioned some of the Jewish background here of Luke chapter 5. But it's also important for us to keep in mind that there were Gentiles in the audience of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see that especially uh, a little bit later on tonight. The Gentiles were, many of them, uh, like the Jews, had greatly influenced by Greek culture and Greek thought. Uh, one of the purposes of Alexander the Great when he conquered these eastern regions of the Mediterranean was to bring Greek culture to the people. And so in Israel, there were Greek cities. There were people who spoke primarily Greek. There were Greek temples to Greek gods. One of the temples in Israel, and I haven't been able to find out if there was more than one, but one of the temples at Jerusalem uh, was to the god Asclepius, the Greek god of healing. 
supposedly. And it was uh, up near the pool of Bethesda, some of the same water that fed the pool of Bethesda had been associated at one time with this god Asclepius and healing. And people believed that this god had the power to heal, but that he liked to heal when you had a dream. He would heal you while you were sleeping in your dreams. And so people would go to the temple and sleep. So the Greek people also were afflicted with sickness, disease, much like today. I think in some ways, some of it may have been more, uh, more intense during the time of Christ. I, I suspect that there was some demonic activity that brought extra darkness upon the land in opposition to Christ, but we can't always tell exactly in each setting. But the point in the passage as we come into Luke's gospel is that we need to realize medicine was primitive. There were doctors. Luke himself obviously was a doctor. They did what they could, but there was so much they could not deal with, so much they did not know. They didn't understand infectious diseases. They didn't understand how infections carried from one to another, and oftentimes the doctor was the one who carried the disease from one patient to the next. The people had very little help and very little hope when things went bad, especially in things like leprosy. And so when the Gospels record for us the Lord Jesus and the miracles of healing, there is a lot going on in the context. This is, it is a demonstration to the Jewish people that their Messiah has come. It is a demonstration to everyone who sees it that this man, Jesus, has the power of God, the power over nature, the power over disease, the power over creation. And as Luke writes to the Greek people, he's writing to them that the Son of Man was a man of compassion who was stirred to minister to the people. He wasn't in it for himself. And so we come to Luke's Gospel in chapter 5, verse 12. As we walk along with the Lord Jesus Christ tonight, we're not told exactly where he is, but he is in one of the cities, Luke 5, 12. Behold, there was a man covered with leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for the cleansing, just as Moses commanded as a testimony for them. And so we have a man who comes, and he is covered with leprosy. There's a lot about leprosy we still don't know from those days. There is probably some of that same kind of leprosy still in the world with us in some places in, uh, the, on the continent of Asia and South Africa. But this was a disease that was highly contagious. It was a disease that ate away the flesh. It was a disease that uh, literally ate away your fingers and your toes, your nose, it would, it would corrupt your skin. It would, it would just be, you would be covered sometimes in the later stages from head to toe with, uh, with this terrible disease. It was 
um, in most cases, incurable for most people. It was a hopeless condition. And it was also greatly feared because of its contagiousness. It wasn't understood, uh, but, but people knew that, partly from the teaching of Leviticus 13 and 14, that, that you weren't to have contact with someone who had leprosy. They were unclean ceremonially, and they had to be apart from the people. And so you ended up with people living in leper colonies. They would be areas outside of a village. And the only hope those people had for surviving was with if someone had compassion on them and brought them food or clothing. And often it was the relatives that would be doing that, taking care of someone. But it's a condition that, that this man has, and he is hopeless, and he knows he is unclean, and yet he has the boldness to approach Jesus. He sees Jesus. We don't know how close he was when he saw him. We don't know how close he came to him, except that it says he fell on his face. I think he came up to him and fell down before him. Here is a man who has no hope in himself. He has no hope in mankind. He has no hope in medicine. He has no help. He is unclean. He can never again take a sacrifice to the temple and worship his God. But he hears about this Jesus. Now the interesting thing is about this man that this is the first time that we have a record of Jesus healing leprosy in the Gospels. Now maybe Jesus had healed a leper before, but we don't know that he did. So this man is not here because he has heard about all the lepers that have been cleansed. This man is here because he believes something about Jesus. And what he believes is enough to cause him to fall on his face and worship him. He comes and he falls on his face. And he addresses him as Lord. And he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He has no doubt that Jesus can. That's faith. That's faith. No one else can help him. No one else can heal him. No one else can cleanse him. No one else can make him clean, can bring him back into the ceremonial fellowship of the law and of the people in the temple. He couldn't go to the synagogue. He couldn't hear the public reading of the word and the discourses of the scriptures. But he knows who this Jesus is. He knows he is God. That's all he needs to know. And he falls on his face. He knows Jesus can heal him. Now, interestingly enough, what he doesn't know is what he says, if you are willing. If you are willing. Perhaps there he is recognizing his unworthiness, his humility in front of the Lord who can heal. 
Are we reminded this morning or this evening of all the times in the Old Testament when Israel was told who it was who would heal them? We just read about it in Exodus 15, I am the Lord who will heal you. Uh, we hear it many other times in the Old Testament, Jehovah Rophe, Jehovah who heals. Jehovah who heals. Jehovah who heals. I am the Lord who heals you. He will heal the nations, the prophets said. Who heals? Jehovah heals. Who is this man worshiping? He realizes that Jesus is Jehovah. And he worships him. And, and I want you to notice that he worships him before he is healed. He worships him because he is worthy of worship, not because he's going to get healed. Because he doesn't know if he's going to get healed. He says, if you're willing. I wonder sometimes if, if we're tempted to withhold our worship until the Lord does something for us. Oh, we wouldn't say that out loud because we know how terrible that sounds. But maybe that's the way we kind of dicker with God in our praying or in our thinking or in our lives. Well, Lord, you know, wow, this would be great. Boy, if you do this, Lord, I'll really respond. Why not respond to him because of who he is first? Why not lift up his name and worship him no matter what he does? That's what this man did. That's what this man did. Huh. What, an, what a great example he is. What a great example of humility, of worship, of faith, And of course, we love the way our Lord Jesus Christ responded, the demonstration of his incredible compassion and mercy. He stretched out his hand and touched him. How long had it been since this man had been touched? How long had it been since he shook someone's hand if they did that or gave a hug? How long had it been since he had known the embrace of his family? The love of a child or grandchild? How long? The fact that Jesus would touch him in any other case would make Jesus unclean. If you touched a leper, you'd be unclean. You'd have to go outside of the camp a certain number of days. Later on, take a bath, wash your clothes, put on new clothes, come into the temple, bring your right kind of sacrifice, and, and become cleansed again, ceremonially clean before the Lord. Why? Because you touched someone who was unclean. But in every case in Jesus' ministry where he touches someone, he does not take, he, he does not become unclean. He transfers his cleanness to them. Now, in a sense, he does take his, uh, their uncleanness and ours upon himself, but he does that when he's on the cross and when he's being punished for our sins and when he dies and sheds his blood. It, there's a certain kind of an idea where Jesus went all over Israel collecting up all the uncleanness 
and gathering it up like a storm cloud over his own head so that he could dispense cleanness of soul and spirit to those he touched. He reached out and he touched this man. And he spoke. And he said, I am willing. I am willing. Oh, how God wants to heal people. God wants to save people. God is not stingy and withholding and begrudging when you go and ask and need help when we fall before him and ask our God in heaven, our Father above. What does he do? He gives to all men willingly, abundantly. When we ask in the right spirit, a humility and worship like this man. The Lord Jesus Christ was more than willing to help this man. And so he said, be cleansed. Be cleansed. Not be healed. Because leprosy was not only a matter of healing and disease, it was a matter of uncleanness. And it's interesting, in all the records of ancient history, it is the Hebrew literature that has more information about leprosy than any other literature of the Old Testament era, of you know, all the other cultures. And there are scholars who believe that leprosy was a particularly bad affliction among the Hebrews because God was teaching them lessons. Now, they weren't always listening. But it was a special work of God in their midst to bring those diseases among them. And here this man is not only healed, but he is cleansed. Wow. Amazing. Praise the Lord. You think maybe he was jumping up and down? Doesn't say that, I know. But what happens to you when something good happens? Something great. Don't you rejoice? You're so glad, you're so happy. Wow. Woohoo. And we want to tell somebody. And so Jesus uh, takes care of that. Immediately the leprosy left him, left the man, and Jesus ordered the man to tell no one. Don't tell anybody. What? You gotta be kidding. The Browns just won a football game. Well, I'm going to tell everybody. Don't tell anybody. That seems like a very strange command to us, doesn't it? But I think there were two reasons for it. One of them is immediately in the text. And that was before he told anybody, his responsibility, according to Leviticus 13 and 14, was to go and present himself to the priests for a verification that he was cleansed from the leprosy. We're not going to take time to read those two chapters, but you can. Uh, they're both extensive chapters um, about leprosy, both in, in uh, bodily leprosy and also other afflictions of, of leprosy that got in the house, it got on the clothing and some other things. It's a pretty gruesome. But when a leper was healed... He was to present himself to the priests to verify. By the way, it was the priests who were the ones that verified that the man had leprosy in the Old Testament economy. So 
The, so, so the first reason was so that he could go to the priest. The other reason that I think he told him to be quiet about what had happened is because the Lord Jesus uh, is not just looking to draw a crowd. He's not trying to establish um, a popularity contest where, where he has hundreds of thousands of people, tens of thousands following him around all the time. The Lord Jesus does not want his ministry to be hindered and hampered by just all the, the wild you know, stories going around of all that's being done. He wants people, he wants to be able to move about freely from place to place and town to town. And, and Jesus circulated through hundreds of towns in the northern part of Israel, possibly even outside of the land of Israel. And he did not want to be hindered in his movements. He did not want to be thwarted in his ministry. And so he asked the man to keep it quiet. This is not the only time Jesus asked someone to do this. According to Mark, in the same uh, parallel account, the man went out and began to publish it much and to blaze abroad the matter insomuch that Jesus no more could openly enter into the city. And so he had to be out in the desert places, but people still came to him from every quarter. So the, the main reason was to not hinder his ministry. But I want to go back to this point of them showing the priests. In, Luke, in Leviticus 13 and 14, the priests of the Old Testament probably were kept fairly busy confirming the cases of leprosy, according to Leviticus 13 and 14 instructions. But there is no record anywhere in the Old Testament of anyone ever going to the priest because they were cured. Miriam had leprosy, but that was a limited case. Maybe she went to the priest. I didn't look that up, but that was back in the days of Moses when those things were just being established. And then the only other person that I know of cured in the Old Testament was who? Anybody remember? Naaman, the Syrian. Well, he didn't go to the priest. He went back to Syria. When this man was sent by Jesus to the priest, imagine being the priest. And the guy comes walking in. Hey, I'm Joe from, you know, over the hill, and, and you, I came, you know, 10 years ago, and you confirmed that I had leprosy, and, and I have had it these 10 years, and I'm cured. I'm here to be checked out. And the priest is looking at him and scratching his head and somebody and he says somebody go get the scroll from Leviticus what do we do next they'd done the other part of confirming the cases but they'd never seen one cured as far as we know never so Jesus sends him as a missionary to the priests Jesus wasn't telling him to be completely quiet he had a specific targeted audience for this man. And in part of the process, when a, when a leper was cleansed and went to the priest after a certain period of time of waiting, then they brought a sacrifice and the man was cleansed publicly by the temple and they brought him in and they offered sacrifices. And at that time, everybody would know in the appropriate time. So Jesus is not just telling this man not to speak. He's telling him 
to go to a specific audience and be a testimony to the priests. Well, as a result of all of this, in verses 15 and 16, the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But partly because of these large crowds, as well as for the purpose of fellowshipping with his father, Jesus, in verse 16, would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. There we find him in the next chapter uh, before he calls the twelve, praying like that, withdrawn from the crowds, from the pressure of ministry, retreating to places of secret fellowship and refreshment with his heavenly Father. It's hard for us to grasp the depth and the meaning of all of that. So that's the first occasion given by Luke of the healing of a leprous man. The second occasion begins in verse 17. <clears throat> One day he was teaching. You'll notice the time here is not distinct and definite, nor the places, um, because those aren't the, aren't the point. One day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Well, this is still early on in Jesus' ministry, but the news is getting around about this Jesus of Nazareth who's preaching and doing miracles up in Galilee, traveling from place to place, and crowds are gathering, and people are talking about him. And the religious leaders of Israel began to get concerned and uh, begin to talk among themselves. And we, we find often they send delegations to listen to Jesus and to ask him questions and try to understand him but especially to challenge him and ask where he has gotten his authority. So these are Pharisees and teachers of the law. These are the, these are the seminary graduates. These are the ones with the PhDs and the, uh, all the other letters behind their name who've had the official training of the uh, traditions and the rituals of Judaism. And they've come from all over, Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem all the way from Jerusalem. And they're listening. They're checking him out. They're suspicious. Something's not right. He doesn't have a degree. He's a carpenter. By report, he's a Galilean, of all things. Anybody knows that a Jew with good credentials comes from Judea, from a good family out of Jerusalem. Can any good thing come from, especially a town like Nazareth? And so there's all these questions. They're here to, to, they're, they're here to check him out, not because they're hopeful of believing him, but because they're skeptical and looking for uh, reasons to reject him, I suspect. So the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Don't you love the way the Lord stuck that right there on that verse with those Pharisees? Here come the Pharisees, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Okay, you can argue with some things, but you can't argue with a miracle. You just can't. All right? 
do you say to that? I love it. I love the book of John, and I love when John tells us about the man that was healed in, healed in Jerusalem, and he's dragged before the elders and examined. Tell us who did this and what. And, uh, and he's telling them what happened. And, and uh, at one point he says, well, this is a marvelous thing. This man just healed me and you don't know who he is? Hello? You cannot argue with the power that was present with Christ. In verse 18, then we have the occasion, uh, this report of the man who is paralyzed and his friends bring him. Uh, in, one of the gospel writers tells it was, it was four men that come and well, aren't you glad this wasn't your house they couldn't get in the house so they went up on the roof and ripped a hole in the roof and let him down through the ceiling I had to wonder what was going on down, down below as the people were getting you know clay and mud and whatever from the roof dropping down on them as Jesus is, what is going on but you see these men were moved by compassion for their friend and I believe they were moved by faith because they knew Jesus could help. They have compassion and they have faith. And verse 20 points out that when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. I think the man had faith as well as his friends. Faith. Seeing their faith, he said... Faith doesn't heal, Jesus heals. But faith is the right response to the reality of the power of God when you're staring it right in the face. Jesus healed. But he didn't heal it quite as we would expect. <laughs> Does God ever do things different from the way you expect? I, I really like this one. Because first thing he says is, friends, your sins are forgiven you. Now, if he didn't have the Pharisees and the teachers of the law there as an audience, I don't know if he would have done it this way. But I, I love the way Jesus does things right in front of these guys just to kind of irk them. I love it that John tells us so many times that when Jesus went down to Jerusalem, he went into the temple on the Sabbath, or he went into Jerusalem on the Sabbath, and there he healed on the Sabbath. You know, he could have done it on Monday or Sunday or Friday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday, but he specifically did it on the Sabbath. Do you think he had a point? And so because of these men who are watching and listening to him, he says, your sins are forgiven you, not may your sins be forgiven you. Well, anybody can say that. May your sins be forgiven you. But he says definitively, your sins are forgiven you. Now, everyone hearing that knew that only God can forgive sins. That's very clear in the Old Testament scriptures. And so the Pharisees and scribes immediately, their minds are just humming with the idea, this man is speaking blasphemy. He's claiming to be God. That can't be true. Isn't it interesting how many times we're convinced that something can't be true just because we're convinced? And we can't see what's looking us right in the face. We find that throughout the New Testament. 
they could not see. But Jesus continues, he's not done there. He points out to them in verse 22 to the Pharisees and the scribes that they are reasoning in their hearts by asking them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? So he says, which is easier to say your sins have been forgiven you or to say get up and walk? Well, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. You can't prove that I didn't just do it. But if I tell him to get up and walk, you'll all know whether I'm a phony. So what does he do? Tells him to get up, and pick up his bed, and go home. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. Authority. Jesus had the authority to, pick, uh, to, to forgive the sins. He demonstrated it by the power of doing the miracle. With the response in verse 26, they were all struck with astonishment. I think that included the Pharisees and the scribes. They were struck with astonishment. What do you say to that? They can't argue with the fact that the guy picked up his bed and walked out. And everybody in the room knows that he just forgave the man's sins. He's God. They're filled with astonishment. They begin to glorify God. And they're also filled with fear, reverent awe of the power of God, saying we have seen remarkable things on this day. We have seen remarkable things. Praise God for the remarkable things that our God does for us and has done in the past. There's one more set of verses in chapter 6 that are part of our text tonight. It's a generic description of more healing. In Luke 6:17, Jesus came down to them and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them. There's only about 10 things I'd like to point out there. But you can read it. Uh, we may mention, I, I'll probably take time to mention a couple things from this. Uh, the next time we're together, because there is, it's a significant description of who is there, where they're from, and what is happening in their midst. The Son of Man is the God of compassion. He is the Savior of mercy. He's the one who loves us. He wants to take away the sins, the diseases, the the, the terrible wretchedness that afflicts our soul. He's the God of salvation. Help us, Lord, to share that good news with others. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for using Luke for the Holy Spirit's ministry of inspiring these accounts. 
Thank you for our Savior. Thank you for these people. Thank you for their salvation. Thank you for the demonstration of who Christ is. And thank you that we have that same opportunity tonight to draw near to him and fall upon our faces and worship him. Strengthen us, I pray, that we might be going and telling with amazement the remarkable works of Christ in all that he has done for us. In Jesus' name.